Amen. Right, so, this morning, friends, perhaps for the last time for a little while, we're going to be in Genesis chapter 3. In fact, no, we'll probably be there on Friday as well, actually. So we're not quite at the end of our journey through Genesis. But turn to Genesis chapter 3. We're going to spend a bit more time exploring this story that we are all very familiar with. We're all very familiar with the story of Genesis 1 through 3. But that doesn't mean that there isn't new things for us to discover. No matter how many times we've heard this story, read this passage, there is always more for us to discover, always more for us to see, always more that God, through the power of His Spirit, wants to show us as we dive into His Word. And this morning, I pray that He will help us see something with fresh eyes this morning. You know the story, of course, of Genesis Chapters 1 to 3. Genesis chapter 1 tells the story of how the universe was made. God spoke and it was so. That's how the universe came to be. God spoke and there was land and sea and trees and plants and animals and stars and planets and human beings. God spoke And it was so. That's the story of Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 2 tells us the story of the way the world was supposed to be. Remember the picture that we get of the world in Genesis chapter 2. God plants a paradise garden. And he puts human beings in it. And he says to the human beings, this is all yours. Enjoy it, work it, keep it, and extend the boundaries of this paradise to all the four corners of the earth. And by the end of Genesis chapter 2, we have this beautiful picture of the way the world was supposed to be. Human beings living in perfect harmony with one another, enjoying one another. Human beings living in perfect harmony with the earth, with the animals, with all things By the end of Genesis chapter 2, the the Hebrew word that might describe what the world was like is that Hebrew word shalom. We know that word, don't we? Shalom. It it means peace, but it means more than peace. one, one, One writer has defined shalom as the way that things were supposed to be. That's what shalom is, and that's what the world was existing in a state of at the end of Genesis Chapter 2. But then we arrive at Genesis chapter 3. And whereas Genesis told us or showed us the way the world was meant to be, Genesis 3 tells us why the world is, in fact, the way it is. All the pain, all the frustration, all of the brokenness. Genesis 3 tells us why. The world is the way it is. It doesn't just tell us why the world is the way it is. It tells us or shows us why we are the way that we are. And by we, I mean all of us, all of humanity. Genesis 3 shows us why we are the way we are. And more than that, and this is where we might need new eyes to see something this morning. Genesis Genesis 3 doesn't just tell us 
why the world is the way it is or why we are the way we are. Genesis 3 tells us that the world is the way it is because we are the way we are. You see, the story of Genesis 3 confronts us with a very sobering reality. Genesis 3 reveals to us that all of the problems that we see in the world, all of the pain, all of the brokenness and frustration and conflict, Genesis 3 tells us that it is not just out there, but it's actually in here as well. And so if we read this story carefully, with open hearts and listening ears, we should, if we read carefully, we should come to the realization, friends, that we are just as broken as the world is. And we should come to the realization that we are not broken because the world is broken. In fact, the world is broken because we are broken. It's the reality that Genesis 3 confronts us with. Now, the message doesn't stop there, thankfully. There is good news, but it does diagnose the problem. You know, there's a story told, and uh, I haven't been able to figure out whether this is actually true or not, but it's a well-known story. In 1908, the Times newspaper, they wrote to many of the world's leading thinkers, professors, scientists, philosophers, you know, lecturers. They wrote, they wrote to many of the world's leading thinkers, the brightest and the best minds, and they invited them all to submit an article to be published in the paper. And the title for the article was, What is Wrong with the World? So they wrote to everyone and said, can you write an article with this heading? What is wrong with the world? And one of the people they wrote to was a man called G.K. Chesterton. He was a well-known uh, theologian, Catholic theologian, very bright mind, written loads of books. You can still read his books today. And uh, he was invited by the newspaper to submit an article with the answer to the question, what is wrong with the world? And he, he, he responded to the invitation, and this is what he wrote. He said, Dear Sirs, regarding your article, what is wrong with the world? I am. Yours truly, G.K. Testerton. What is wrong with the world? I am, he says. It's really easy, isn't it? Really easy to believe that all the problems, all the pain and brokenness and frustration, wickedness in the world, it's really easy to believe that it's because of others, other people, other things. We're really good at placing the blame for all the mess that we see out there somewhere outside of ourselves, aren't we? 
we like to point the finger and pontificate about what the problem with the world is. We like to blame politicians and governments and greedy business people. You know, we like to blame them and say, they're the problem. If only we had a better prime minister, if only they were more red than blue or more blue than red, well, then the world would be a much better place. Or if only people were less greedy, well, then there'd be no more problems in the world. We like to point the blame outside of ourselves. And listen, I'm not for a second this morning suggesting that we should never, that we should be silent on those things. I'm not suggesting for a second that, you know, we should never speak up for what is right. But I think that if we have ears to really listen to the message that the Bible gives from Genesis 3 onwards, we should come to the conclusion that actually G.K. Testerton, he might well have been right when he said, I am the problem with the world. What's wrong with the world? I am. You know, this is an uncomfortable truth, maybe even an offensive truth. And it's not something that we find easy to accept, is it? It's not fine, it's not something that we find easy to admit to, that when we are confronted with the brokenness of our own hearts, that's a really uncomfortable reality to face. And in fact, when it happens, our natural instinct is to ignore it, is to run away from it, or to avoid it, or to deflect it. We don't like to be in a position where we're confronted with the brokenness and the twistedness of our own hearts, we find it much safer to run and hide. We find it much easier to deflect the blame. And the reason we do that, friends, is because that's exactly what the first humans did. When they were confronted with the brokenness of their own hearts, they hid and they blamed. Let's read the story together, shall we? Genesis 3, verses 6 and following. Thank you, Nigel. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened. And they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? And the man said, the woman, you put her here with me. She gave me some of the fruit from the tree, and I ate it. And the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I 
8. We'll stop the reading there for now. But we know the story really well, I'm sure, don't we? The first humans did the one thing that God had told them not to do. They were deceived by the snake. They chose to trust in their own wisdom rather than God's. And they chose to eat from the tree of life rather, uh, sorry, they chose to eat from the tree that leads to death rather than eat from the tree of life. And as soon as they did, they realized, we're told that they were naked. This is a tragic moment for the first humans. And it's really important, I think, to understand that when they realized they were naked, it wasn't just simply a feeling of being embarrassed that they experienced. It wasn't a case of, oh, you've seen me naked. It wasn't just embarrassment. It was something far deeper than embarrassment, something far more profound and something far more tragic. It wasn't embarrassment that Adam and Eve experienced in that moment. It was shame. It was shame. You see, there's a huge difference between being embarrassed and being ashamed. When we're embarrassed, we want to escape the situation, right? But when we feel ashamed... We want to become someone else. There's a huge difference between being embarrassed and ashamed. And what Adam and Eve felt in the garden at that moment was not just embarrassment, it was shame. Suddenly they become very aware of who they really are. Suddenly they are confronted with the brokenness of their own minds and their own hearts. It's almost as if In that moment, suddenly they realized what G.K. Testerton would suggest many thousands of years later, that they were the problem with the world. It was a traumatic moment, devastating moment, a terrifying thing for Adam and Eve to be confronted with. So terrifying that their immediate instinct was to cover themselves up, to hide away from God. And to point the finger of accusation. Do you see what they did? It said they sewed fig leaves together to cover themselves up. They hid among the trees. And when God came and asked them what had happened, they pointed the finger of blame at one another and at the snake. Their immediate instinct in this moment of experiencing shame for the first time was to run and hide and was to deflect the blame. And here's the thing that we need to understand when it comes to Genesis 3. We are Adam and Eve. Right? We are Adam and Eve. Genesis 3 is not just a story about what they did back then and back there. Genesis 3 is actually a story about what we also would have done if we were back there and back then. That's the sobering, painful, uncomfortable, maybe even offensive reality that we have to confront when we read the Bible. It's not just a story about some people thousands of miles away, thousands of years ago. It's actually our story as well, right? We are Adam and Eve because we do exactly the same thing. When we're confronted with the brokenness of our own hearts, with the twistedness of our own minds, we are just as proper. We are just as uh, what's the word? We are just as proper. Prone, prone. Thank you, thank you. You can preach next week if you want. If you want, Pat. We are just 
prone to hide, to cover up, and to deflect the blame in much the same way as Adam and Eve did. We are all Adam and Eve. All of us. We see this all the time, don't we? See this? I see this all the time in my own kids at home, right? One of them does something naughty. One of them does something mean or says something unfair. One of my kids hits one of my other kids, which has happened maybe once in the last 15 years. <laughs> right? You see it happening, right? And you confront your children about what they did. Why did you do that? And what's their instinct? Well, it's because they said this, or because she did that, or their instinct is never to say, yes, it was me, I'm sorry, I shouldn't have done it. The instinct is always to pass the blame, to cover up, to hide from the reality of the fact that they are the problem. And it's easy for me to stand here and point to my kids as examples of Adam and Eve. But the truth is, is I'm not much better, friends. And I'm a few decades on in life from them. But the truth is, is I'm not that much better. Because I have that same tendency when I'm confronted with my own brokenness. I have that same instinct to hide, to cover up, and to pass the blame. And uh, without wanting to offend you this morning, I think you do too. You know, I've been married for 17 years. Is it 17? Is it 17? No, nearly 17. Nearly 17. (laughs) Nearly 17 years. And uh, my wife and I get on great, but occasionally we don't. (laughs) Right? Is that all right? Is it okay if you're pastor and his wife sometimes don't get on is that okay yeah am I still allowed to are you still listening yeah um here's the thing sometimes we don't right and sometimes more times than I would care to admit to be honest with you I have said things to my wife that have been unfair and unkind and have really hurt her right And, you know, I'm, I'm quite, I'm quite quick. Well, I say that. I like to think I'm quite quick at realizing when I've said something that was unfair and unkind. And so, you know, I always try to reconcile, you know. And so I'll go to my wife in these moments. And, uh, I'll sit down and I'll look at her and I'll say, Emily, I'm, I'm really sorry for what I said. I should not have said that. Right? And what I should do is just leave it there. Right. You're speaking from experience, Dave. (laughs) But it's because of this or because of that. Or because of that. And the thing I often say is, I didn't really mean it. Or I will say something like, I don't know what happened, something just came over me. Right? And, uh, and I, I just, as I read 
the words of Jesus more, as I read the scriptures more, and as I allow the Spirit to penetrate my heart more. I'm just not sure that's a reasonable excuse. Just not sure. Because Jesus said on numerous occasions, you know what he said? He said, out of the overflow of your heart, the mouth speaks. In other words, Jesus says there are no careless words. There are no empty words. And every word you speak, every unkind word you speak, didn't come from nowhere. It came from somewhere deep within you. And so for me to sit with my wife and say, I'm sorry for saying what I did, I didn't really mean it. I'm just not sure that's entirely true. Because if I take the words of Jesus seriously, I think he would say, no, you did mean it. It came from deep within you. But to see, the, the problem with that is, is I do not want to admit that. I do not want to admit that there is that kind of unkindness in my heart. I don't, I don't want to admit that. I don't want to admit that I'm a broken person in that way. And so when I apologize to my wife, I will caveat it by saying, I'm sorry I said what I did, but I didn't really mean it or something came over me. And the truth is, I'm not sure that is entirely correct. You see, when we say things, Jesus says they come out of the heart. And so to say something came over me is not true. Something came out of you, not something came over you. You see, and it's okay for me to point at my kids as examples of behaving like Adam and Eve, but the truth is, is I don't think that I'm that much better when I'm confronted with my own brokenness. I'm just as prone to try and cover up, hide away, and to pass the blame as Adam and Eve were, as my children are. I just do it in a far more sophisticated way. By saying things like, I don't know what came over me. Almost as if the problem is somewhere else, some other power detached from who I... No, no, no. What's wrong with the world? I am. Genesis 3 confronts us with that reality. But friends, do not despair. Do not despair. You know, the human heart has not changed since Genesis chapter 3. And human behavior has not changed since Genesis chapter 3. But here's what I want you to grab a hold of this morning. Just as much as the human heart hasn't changed, neither has God's heart. Neither has God's heart. His heart has not changed one bit since Genesis 3. And when we look closely and read carefully what we discover in Genesis 3, that even though humans are prone to cover up and run and hide, God is not content to leave us hiding. Do you see what God does when he shows up on the scene? You can see it, can't you? God comes and he arrives in the garden. Adam and Eve have done the one thing they told him not to do. They're hiding, they're covering themselves up, they're passing the blame. And God arrives in the garden to go for a walk with his children, to spend some time with them, to fellowship with them, to be intimate with them. And as he arrives, he can't find them anywhere. And so God asks three questions of the humans. Where are you? Who told you that you were naked? 
Have you eaten from the tree that I told you not to? It's interesting, isn't it, to think about God asking questions. This is the God, remember, who spoke everything into existence. Right? This is the God who has all power, has all wisdom, knows everything, can do anything, and sees everything. And so it's interesting to think, well, why does he have to ask any questions as if he doesn't know? Does he not know where Adam is? <laughs> does he not know what they... Of course he knows. He's the omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent God. He knows everything. Of course he knows where Adam and Eve were. Of course he knows what they did. And so the reason God asked these questions is not because he wants more information or needs more information, right? The reason God asks these questions is not for information, but to extend an invitation, right? God asked these questions of Adam and Eve, not because he wants information from them, but because he's an extending an invitation to them. In other words, God is saying, by asking these questions to Adam and Eve, he's saying, you can come out. You can come out from the shadows into the light. You can come out from the deception and into the truth. That's the reason God asks questions, not for information, but for invitation. Right? For invitation. Isn't it interesting? You know, God, God knew what they had done. Right? And he could have arrived in a very different way. Right? Rather than just strolling into the garden, God could have come storming into the garden with thunder and lightning and hailstones and fire. And he could have bellowed at the top of his voice, Adam! I know where you are! Get out here now! I've seen what you've done. Sadly, that's sometimes the way we deal with our children, but that's not the way God deals with his. He gently walks into the garden and he gently says, Adam, where are you? Where are you, Adam? You see, God wants to Invite Adam and Eve back into the light. You know, I think sometimes we have a wrong perspective. Even those of us who have been following Jesus for decades, sometimes we have this misguided, twisted notion of who God is. We know that God's a holy God, and he cannot and will not tolerate sin. We know that, right? But sometimes we imagine that because of God's holiness, sometimes we imagine that when we are covered in sin and shame, just like Adam and Eve were, that God is the one who turns his back and runs away from us. But actually Genesis 3 tells a different story. Genesis 3 reveals a different God. Genesis 3 reveals a God who when his children are hiding in sin and shame, he comes to look for them, right? It's not God who's running away. It's Adam and Eve who are running away. 
And sometimes, friends, when we are confronted with our own brokenness and we feel covered in our own shame, it is so easy for us to believe that God is the kind of God who turns his back and runs away. But Genesis 3 tells a different story. It says, no, 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 that's not who God is. He comes to pursue his children who are covered in shame. And he wants to invite them to come out of hiding back into the light so that he can re-establish and restore his relationship with them. That is who God is. And I just think we need reminding of that sometimes. I think sometimes we hide from God because we're too aware of our shame. We hide away. Because we don't think he wants to see us or know us. But Genesis 3 tells a different story. It tells of a God who pursues, pursues the people he made. In spite of their shame and their brokenness, he pursues them and he wants to restore them back to him. Self. So the story goes on and Adam and Eve come out of hiding. They don't really own up to their sin. They don't really confess it. They keep blaming one another. And then in the following verses, God goes on to explain what the consequences for their actions will be. You know, in verse 15 to 17, there's this poem that God speaks or sings or declares and it It's a tragic story, but it is laced with hope, but we don't have time to go into that. It's a tragic story how because of the entrance of sin into God's creation, life is going to be marked by pain and frustration and toils. It's it's, it's the consequences of what they get. There are consequences for for, for sin, for sure. That's verses 15 to 17, but then look what happens. Look what God does next. Verse 21, the Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skins and clothed them. He clothed them. You remember, nakedness is a symbol of shame. A symbol of utter brokenness. What does God do to these first humans who are covered in shame? He says... Let me clothe you. Let me clothe you. Let me cover over your shame. This is such a powerful picture of who God is. In the immediate aftermath of the devastating rebellion that Adam and Eve had just engaged in, God is revealing himself to be someone who still wants to pursue relationship. God is revealing himself to be someone who is more than willing and able to cover over their shame. And that's what he does. He makes clothes for them and covers them, not because they were cold, It was a sign of God saying, let me cover your shame. Let me cover your shame. Let me take away your fear. Let me cover over your shame. And isn't it interesting to notice that the clothes that God covered Adam and Eve in were made from skins. Isn't that interesting? We don't know what kind of skin these clothes were made from, but I think we're safe to assume 
that it was the skin of some kind of animal. Apparently there were lots of animals floating about in Eden. It must have been the skin of some kind of animal that God used to stitch together clothes in order to cover the shame of the human. And so if God used the skins of an animal, I think we have to assume that somewhere an animal was dyed. Somewhere an animal has been sacrificed in order for the human's sin and shame to be covered. Do you see what this is? Even in the first few chapters of the Bible, even in the immediate aftermath of the first rebellion of the first sin, God is declaring to us the gospel. The gospel is that one day a sacrifice will be made and all of our shame will be covered up. Even in the beginning, even in the beginning, God wants to point us forward to a day when a sacrifice will be made. Not a sacrifice of a literal animal, but the sacrifice of the Lamb of God. He will be sacrificed. And by His sacrifice, your shame, my shame can be covered up. Your brokenness, my brokenness can be healed. Our separation, our estrangement from God can be restored. Why? Because of the sacrifice of the Lamb of God. And so friends, Genesis 3 confronts us with a sobering reality, an uncomfortable truth. We're the problem. But also, Genesis 3 declares to us a glorious solution. We're the problem. But Jesus is the solution. And it's only when we come to the reality of being able to accept that we're the problem, only then can we truly know the joy of being covered by the sacrifice of the Lamb of God. And so this morning, I pray that none of us walk out of here feeling condemned or crushed by the reality of our own brokenness. I pray this morning, friends, and again, this is my words have no power, but I want to ask Holy Spirit to pierce these truths into our hearts. I pray this morning that we would leave this place liberated by the reality that there is a lamb who has been sacrificed and his sacrifice is sufficient to cover all of my shame and to heal all of my brokenness. What a saviour. What a God. What a message. What a gospel. What's wrong with the world? I am. Is there hope for the world? Yes, there is. His name is Jesus. And he takes away our shame. And he heals our brokenness. And I pray that that glorious, liberating truth will pierce your hearts this morning. Alan, can you come and lead us in a song? Thank you, mate.